On this episode, I talked to Randy Schaub, the VP of Engineering at WeWork. We recorded this episode in WeWork's new digs in Salesforce Tower in San Francisco. In a random coincidence, when I was a kid, other than computers, I had a keen interest in world history. And it turns out that Randy and I share that in common. We cover a wide variety of topics, including the fall of the Berlin Wall, and also talk a bit about the history of Silicon Valley, which is always an inspiring refresher course. As an interesting trivia point, stick around until the end and find out what Randy and Roger Federer have in common. Enjoy. All right. So I am very lucky to be here in Salesforce Tower. I've been watching this building come up over the last little while and always kind of itching to get inside. And I finally got my chance today. And it was better than I imagined. Uh, My guest was very kind to show me uh, a very unique view of both Coit Tower and Alcatraz, which I've never actually seen in one line of sight from the angle I saw here. And if I'm lucky and the fog clears, I might be able to see the Golden Gate Bridge at the end. So I'm, I'm already uh, having a great day. But let me, before further ado, have my guest introduce himself. Please go ahead. Thanks, Bobby. My name is Randy Schaup, and I'm VP of Engineering here at WeWork. And so the reason why you were able to see this as, you know, to connect those two ideas together is WeWork as a co-working space company just opened their San Francisco headquarters here in Salesforce Tower. So we have floors 36 to 38, several of which are local San Francisco headquarters. And I say that because the company's headquartered in New York. So this is our sort of, you know, local regional headquarters, I suppose. But we also have a floor for members that is either open now or opening soon. Yeah, I'm certainly eagerly looking forward to that particular floor because I'm a, as we talked about before, I'm a WeWork customer, a very happy and kind of almost a raving fan of WeWork. And uh, looking forward to that opening up. So I thought I would begin this interview, as I do with most interviews, talking about Mikhail Gorbachev. (laughs) Of course. Excellent. I love it. (laughs) And so we'll get to that in a second, for those who don't know. But I would love if you could paint a picture about, let's say, going into college, what your interests were and what you thought you were passionate about doing career-wise when you graduated from college. Beautiful. It's cleverly done. Yeah, so as we were talking before, lots of times people have really, there are lots of bunch of people in our industry that have very straightforward lines from their interests as children or whatever into their current job. And mine is there, but also not there. And I'll explain what I mean by that. What you're hinting is when I entered college, I wanted to be an international lawyer. So this is the, you know, when I entered college, it was in 1986. So height of the Cold War mm-hmm. between the US and the Soviet Union. And during high school, I, the thing that I did, you know, a bunch of people do athletics or various other things. I did speech and debate. And one of the things that we learn about is all sorts of current events related stuff, including particularly, you know, all the thousands of nuclear weapons that you know, each of us had pointed at each other. So I majored in, in political science and was particularly interested in East-West relations. So actually, while I was uh, at Stanford, I went to do a joint program between in West Berlin. So I you know, say West Berlin because there was a wall around it at the time. And, uh, and that was a quarter there. And then a quarter in Krakow in Poland, which was again wow. then behind the Iron Curtain. So both wonderful experiences. And nobody knew this in 1989 when I went, but that was the last gasp of that particular division, right? So the wall was about to come down in a couple months later. Nobody knew that. And I wasn't, sadly, wasn't there for that. I was back here, but the wall came down. And then two years later, the Soviet Union collapsed, et cetera. You mentioned Gorbachev, so lots of things we could talk about in there. But one of my personal heroes at the time and and, and still is is Gorbachev, because if you know your modern history, Mm post-World War II history, as I'm sure you do, but 
you know, your, your listeners, the history of World War II is lots of violent upright, lots of peaceful uprisings violently put down all <laughs> over Eastern Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So Hungary and the Prague Spring in 1968 and, 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 and. And so there was no reason to believe in 1989 that another one of those wouldn't have happened. Every, I'll say it, I'll say it an easier way. There was every reason to believe that the Soviets would and could have violently put down all of that opening that started in Hungary and went to Czechoslovakia and went to East, East Germany, et cetera. And they certainly had the capability to do it, yeah. you know, tens and tens upon tens of tank divisions uh, everywhere. Um, and they didn't. And why didn't they? A lot of it was because Gorbachev saw that it would be a better world if he didn't. And I don't think he expected the Soviet Union to collapse and things to happen, you know, whatever. Right. I think nobody, nobody sees that. But if there's any one person on the planet to credit for the fact that we didn't have a World War III at that moment, mm-hmm. it's Mikhail Gorbachev. And I also, sub- I, this is just so lucky, he subsequently visited Stanford in 1990, uh, right around the time I was graduating, and I got to shake his hand. And I got to see him, and I wish I had a picture of that, but uh, but I don't. It's it's only in my eyes, or only in my brain. But yeah, great great personal hero for me for so many reasons. That's terrific. As a high schooler thinking about college, so debate was was something you were very passionate about. Were you uh, interested in you know computers and programming at that time? Yeah. So the other thread of this, the other way to tell this story is. My family and I moved to the Bay Area before it was called Silicon Valley. We moved, I was born in 1968, so I just turned 50. We moved here when I was one and a half from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And my parents met at what is now called Carnegie Mellon University. When they went there, it was called Carnegie Institute of Technology. Right. And my father earned, was in one of the first computer science PhD programs in the country at Carnegie Mellon. He got his PhD in computer science in 1970. And then uh, quickly, you know, immediately after uh, get earning his PhD, came out to California to first work in Berkeley for a company, which collapsed at just the right time as Xerox was forming their lab, which mm-hmm. is called PARC, Palo Alto mm-hmm. Research Center. They put that lab together in 1970, 71, something like that. And then my father joined as like one of the first six or eight researchers in the lab. As a side note... His PhD thesis was on, he proposed FPGAs, so mm-hmm. field programmable gate arrays. That's basically reconfigurable hardware. Turns out as another sidebar, you can use, there's an Amazon service for that right now, a AWS <laughs> service, where you can get access to FPGAs. And also, every time you do a Bing search, the ranking of Bing search is done by FPGAs that they have bolted onto the back of the racks of uh, Bing servers. Wow. And, that, and that computes the ranking function, which is the hyper expensive part of all the search engines, it's figuring out what to show in first position, 10th position, 100th position, et cetera. Anyway, so they have a project that they called Catapult, which is exactly about that. Anyway, he didn't do any of that work. He didn't actually even himself take FPGAs forward. Other people did that. But if you like follow the graph of papers, uh-huh. like back, 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 it's like the, the proposal of that was my dad's 1970 PhD thesis, which my mother typed on a typewriter. And you can see that you can see a PDF of it online, but it is a PDF of Printed type oh, wow. pages where you can see the, uh, you know, like cr- uh, cross out, like the, <laughs> yeah, sure. whatever you call it, like liquid paper, white out stuff. Anyway, pretty cool. What did he do at Park? I and mean, this will all connect up in a moment. He was a, he pioneered a bunch of modern computer graphics at mm-hmm. Park. So he built this thing in 1973, which was called Super Paint. And it was a, uh, if you, you know, Google for that, it's like the first 
video, digital video graphics system and like the first paint system or one of the first. Yep. So the, the, the metaphor is super familiar today. You have a palette on the left-hand side or actually on the left-hand monitor, a palette where you like have a colors and you choose your brush and if you want a line or an ellipse or right. whatever. And then on the right-hand side, there'd be a monitor where you would have a canvas and you would draw on there. And so the metaphors that you'd be familiar with from like Mac Paint or Microsoft Paint or something like that, sure. straight up, like all there in 1973. And he built that piece of hardware, you know, by hand. And like he, like C was the high level language. Like he programmed it in machine code. It was pretty badass, actually. <laughs> I mean, as all the people at Park, right? Like he wasn't uniquely badass. He was like equivalently badass to all the other people. And so subsequently, um, he, that work there inspired one of his collaborators, Albie Ray Smith, who went on later to co-found Pixar with Ed Catmull. When they earned an Academy Award for their work, like it was a technical, you mm-hmm. know, achievement award or whatever in uh, 98, I believe, they were very kind. To, you know, the Academy went to them and they said, hey, uh, we'd like to give you guys at Pixar this technical uh, achievement award. And to their great credit, they said, we'll be very happy to accept that award. But you have to find this crazy guy, Dick Shout, because he was the one who inspired us like decades earlier. That's great. Um, and so that was pretty cool. Just to take a second, because I think I know and revere kind of the lore that Xerox Park has in Silicon Valley. But I think that for the next generation, it starts to get a little bit diluted. And oh, I always thank want, you. Yeah. And I want to always just bring it back because I think it's just so critical. I mean, I would not be here sitting here talking to you. Yeah. I mean, I had the career I had without it. Yeah. But for me, it was always this part of reverence because it plays a very important part in the you know, the founding of Apple yes, and how Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak went there and I believe got inspired by the graphical user interface. So I don't know if your dad and the Steves ever crossed paths. Uh, not directly. There's an indirect correspondence with both the Steves later, which I can maybe talk about through Alvi, but... Uh, with Pixar, I guess. Yeah. yeah, through Pixar. There's a whole yeah, story about I'm that. Sure. But, but Xerox Park is famous for yeah. the graphical user interface, yeah. but I believe that's a few yeah. other hits. Five or five. Yeah, so there are, there are four or five things that they invented there. So they invented the graphical user interface. Mm-hmm. So that is a bitmap representation of what shows on the screen. So first off, the screen wasn't a green screen. <laughs> that's right. With, I mean, making no, meaning no disrespect, but like the, the screen, like when you program computers in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even mm-hmm. the beginning of the 90s, <laughs> a lot of times you would program on a terminal, which... A, was a terminal connected to some big mainframe or some monster mm-hmm. computer, but also was only text. And so, you know, the introduction of bitmap graphics, which is now modern, you know, uh, everywhere, like you can't imagine interacting with a computer without it, that was developed at Park. So that's pretty great. So that's overlapping windows. That's the bitmap, which means there's a bit in memory, which if it's on represents a you know white pixel. And if it's off, it represents a black pixel, right. that type of idea. And so that allows you to do, you know, Proportional fonts and bold and I, t- I mean like all the stuff. It just allows you to do everything. Mix graphics together with uh, uh, with text, all that kind of crazy stuff. So cool. Uh, so they did that. Uh, graphical user interface. They did Ethernet. Mm-hmm. So like every way that you are, you know, in your mo- in the moment communicating with the internet. You know, it's like everything. Everything land wise is basically you know Ethernet mm-hmm. or you know ten generations later. Now we're at whatever. Just I just saw AWS announce. It's like. One of the tiny, tiny little announcements among the massive set of announcements of reInvent was like, oh, by the way, we have 100 giggy instances. And like, that wasn't a thing anybody cared about because they announced all this other crazy stuff. But like, 100 gig, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Like, you know, I'm no network engineer, but there was a time when nobody thought Ethernet could go to one gig. Yeah. Nobody, like, like, that was impossible. And like, they did it. And then they did 25, and they did 40, and they did 100. So, okay. Graphical user interface, laser printer, 
object-oriented program, uh, programming because Smalltalk was invented by Alan Kay at Xerox Park. The laser printer was invented there. And then there are a bunch of other ways that are very modern ways of building computers, which were also invented there. So they built the world's first personal computer, yeah. which they called the Alto. The guy, Chuck Thacker, who designed the machine, he designed it in three months, by the way, so pretty with one other guy. One of the main things that they developed, which seems so obvious and modern, but wasn't done, was what he called micro-parallel processing, which is the CPU would schedule all the peripherals. So you got to know that in the 60s, every, it used to be that all the peripherals had their own little controllers. Uh-huh, yep. And so like when Wozniak was putting together the first Apple, it was like 50 chips or right. 60, right? Yes. And like the fact that he was able to get it from 80 chips down to 50 chips was crazy amazing. And so now like we basically, for more, more all intents and purposes, we kind of have one chip with like a few other, you know, mm-hmm. ancillary things. But it used to be, again, every peripheral. So disk drive, keyboard, network controller, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff had their own chip, little controller chip in the peripheral, and which would be scheduling itself, and then somehow they'd have to coordinate with each other. Right. And so the genius of this particular element of Thacker's genius was seeing that he had a CPU that was sometimes, that was a lot of time idle, and he could use that CPU power to schedule everything else. And oh, by the way, if you have a single thing that's scheduling all the things, mm-hmm. now you can pipeline them and overlay, like mm-hmm. now you can do, now you can actually do a scheduler that's right. as distinct from something else. Anyway, so like so many things. And so for anyone that happens to be down near Xerox Park, if you're ever driving in Palo Alto down Deer Creek Road, mm-hmm. nowadays you'll run into, I believe it's Nest that's over there. And on the other side of Nest, all of this thing that Randy's, all of these things that Randy's talking about were created. I think that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. Coyote Point Boulevard yeah, that's right. down there, um, if I remember correctly. Coyote something. Yeah, cool. Okay. So, you know, as a six-year-old, I get to, I got to, uh, I got to go with my dad to work on the weekends. And my brother and I used to beg him to take us to work. First, because they had this conference room that had beanbags in it. Like, <laughs> we would just make forts. Like, I mean, no joke. Like, we're just, you know. Sure. We would make forts in the beanbags, and that was super fun. As a parent now, I have a 12-year-old who will be the third generation of shop engineers, whatever kind of engineering that is, because <laughs> um, of him, not because I'm telling him to be. It never occurred to me that it was weird as a six-year-old to beg your dad to take him to take you to work with him on the weekends. So like we begged him every weekend, could you please take us there? And he was like, okay. And he would go and do more work on his, you know, on his thing. Sure. So later, you know, we got to play on it. Like I would build, make spaceships on his, you know, drew spaceships with the super pain and all that kind of stuff. And then one time he like took me aside and he was like, you want to print that out? I was like, okay, can you do that? Because like even color printing was like magical. He was like, he joked with me. He's like, he printed it out on, the, on like the blazer printer there. And he said, his little joke, which I so remember, he's like, don't show this to anybody from IBM. And like, <laughs> who am I going to show it to my friends at school or whatever? Anyway, that was super cool. So that was always the bed in the back of my head. And I always liked math and computers. So while I was at college, even though that was for sure not my career, because by the way, I mean, he's, a, he's got his own Wikipedia page and he's won an Academy Award and an Emmy and you know, he's a great big pioneer. And so like, not that I was discouraged by that. Like I didn't, it didn't leave a bad taste in my mouth, but it was very clear computer science was my dad's area and I needed to find something else. If that makes any sense. Yeah, like sure. not, not because he discouraged me or encouraged me or just, but just like, oh, that's what a computer science does, scientist does. And like, that can't be like, I can't do that. So maybe I'll do some other things. So my other thing was uh, international law, as we said, through college, I did, I was always interested in math and computers and I did want to study it in a serious way. And at the time, thank goodness, Stanford didn't have minors. And I totally would have minored if Stanford had minors. Now they do. So thank goodness I went then. 
But the only way to study it for serious was to double major. And so I ended up finding this eclectic major called mathematical and computational science, which is not in the engineering school. So it was actually easy, easier to do as a double major. Mm -hmm. And it was like a core of applied math plus computer science and statistics and operations research. Mm -hmm. For the modern people, like operations research is what we call optim you know, optimization theory, right. essentially. Yep. You know, queuing theory and network optimization and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so yeah, so when, um, and actually during college, we don't have to tell all these stories, but as a political science major, one of my friends from high school was my roommate, and he was a double E, and through a long series of coincidences, he ended up getting two offers to, to have programming internships, inter internships at Intel over the summer, one of, obviously only one of which he could take. And I remember I'm sitting there reading, you know, I don't know, just Tocqueville or some like, <laughs> you know, American history thing, maybe. He says, hey, you know anybody who would want a programming internship? And I said, well, I would because uh, <laughs> the Arms Control Center hasn't called me back about the, you know, going and working for, you know, working on nuclear weapon reduction. And so um, I ended up taking that job, but, you know, knock on wood. It was a lot of hubris that went into my, my going down there and like interviewing for it. And I just showed him all the courses I'd taken. Most of it were just math. And I think I'd taken maybe one or two programming courses at the time. But Do you remember what languages you were in those courses? I do. At Stanford, the intro computer science course at the time was teaching, this is a pre Java, by the way. So we were, they taught C++, Prolog, Lisp, and Ada. Mm -hmm. So everyone, <laughs> every one of those that I say is like very, like that's very time, yeah. not timely. That is very uh, of the time, yes. if that makes any sense. Because like Ada was the hyper-structured, it had exceptions and it had like all this amazing stuff. Yeah. And nobody used it because it was too complicated for most people, or most um, compilers to do, but the military could use it and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so yeah, I think you went prologue because that's the thing and, you know, Lisp for the functional. And so really cool and very, I mean, very intentionally like four different styles of, yeah. of language. But what I got to program in when I, when I went to, uh, when I worked at Intel was, I can't even remember the name of it. There was a program which they used for statistical process control. Uh -huh. So like when you're doing physical systems, like even before computers, <laughs> I know you know this, but like even before computers, people like, you know, took measurements of mm -hmm. science that they were doing and they remembered those measurements and then they used those to figure out was the process of like building this particular semiconductor or this particular mask, yeah. which is what we did in mask shop. And was that in, in spec or out of spec or whatever? Anyway, so what they wanted to do, what they basically wanted a, tool person that could help them build some tools to visualize all those things. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I used this statistical package, which is called stats something. I totally forget, but there were, they had a, had a proprietary language called RPL, which was very similar to, it was similar to like a C language, but it was all garbage collected and everything. Yeah. So like, it was all easy to use, very, very easy to use. And so I built, you know, using all the tools that they had, I built a bunch of graphs and a bunch of stuff. And gotcha. it was tons of fun. So you got the bug and then we get to, I guess your end of your undergraduate time and, you know, uh, the international law, political science, career yeah. path, are you still kind of... Yeah, so when I graduated, I, that was still my idea. So I, I did this internship for a couple of years after sophomore year, junior year, and then I worked there over senior year, two days a week. So it was nice to earn money and stuff. And I didn't want to go straight to grad... I, mean, I was going to go straight to grad... I was going to go to grad school. So I was for sure going to do a, a, a um, law and international relations joint program because that's how you do that stuff. And there's a bunch of those programs. There's like Harvard and Tufts and Georgetown has those two. And there's a bunch of, a bunch of good programs in that. So I applied to all of them, but only after two years. So like I went 
first I went and worked for Oracle as a software engineer for a couple of years, basically to screw around and earn some money and have some fun. Like, cause you know, going straight to grad school, that was mm-hmm. going to be like on the track. And so I wanted to take a break a little bit. Yeah. So I worked for two years for Oracle, really enjoyed it. But then I like, you know, to the much to the amazement of my manager and other people, like I took the GRE and I took the LSAT and I like applied to, I applied to all these programs. I ended up going to the program that Stanford Law School has with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in DC. That's a graduate school in international relations, obviously. Um, and that joint program, you know, was a little bit of both. But it turns out that I try not to try to be less verbose, but at the end of my first year, which was a year at the law school, I thought law school was fine. And then I got what I sh- what should have been the perfect job. So it was a, in Silicon Valley, lit- on Sand Hill Road, by the way, like wow. same complex at, it's like 3000 Sand Hill. It's like right, that, that, that complex of VCs that's mm-hmm. right next to, uh, right next to 280 and uh, 2800, something like that. Anyway, so like we were there, like sharing the same complex with a bunch of a bunch of serious VCs. We were a tiny office mm-hmm. of a big New York law firm, so we had tons of resources. I was the first intern that they'd had, so like they were really nice to me, and Great. it was casual dress. Like most most of my colleagues at the time, this is now 92 or 93. Most of my colleagues or you know classmates were working in suits in fancy law firms, and I was working in a fancy law firm but wearing jeans, which <laughs> I really liked. Anyway, so it should have been perfect for all these reasons. And I just hated the work. Like it's intellectual property work, which would think would be very exciting. I, mean, I, I thought it would be. But it turns out that getting people patents is not that fun. It's fun to be an inventor, right. which subsequently I have been. Like it's fun to get up on the whiteboard and describe your invention. Sure. But what the lawyer does is they, they write all the things that you say and they take pictures of, you know, your diagram mm-hmm. and they turn that into some very hard to read patent and they go back and forth with the patent office and fight bureaucratic battles. Yeah. Ultimately at the end of which hopefully they give you your patent and only, and you, and the lawyer learns whether their only feedback to the lawyer is okay, either if you got the patent or not, but it's easy to get patents, sadly, way too easy. But then the other feedback is 20 years later when the patent gets litigated, did you draw the patent? Well, right. Did you like literally, those are the two feedback. That's pretty much it. There's a tight feedback loop, which did you get a patent or not? And you'll always get some kind of patent. But then the real feedback about whether you drew, whether you drew the patent correctly was 20 years later. Anyway, so I hated that. Long story short, I ended up having this really real crisis of, I don't know, crisis of confidence, crisis of uh, my direction in life. And went back to everybody, my parents and everybody saying, you know, that thing I've been telling you I want to do for 10 years. I just decided I just learned that I don't want to do it. And so I'm going to go back to software. Yeah, thankfully, you had a fantastic fallback. Yes, and I will say, I say many times to people, so many of those coincidences laddered up without any of which it wouldn't have been possible. Mm-hmm. Like if I hadn't had that random experience with my roommate to sure. get the internship, if I randomly hadn't, blah, 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 all these different random things. And the fact that I discovered I didn't like it after the first year, instead of that, like if I'd been two years into a four-year program, Very different I for sure would have finished. For sure. No argument. Right. Even if I knew I hated it, I was like, well, I got to at least finish. Yeah. We call that the sunk cost fallacy. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So the fact that it was, for, I was first year into it, the fact that that first internship was so perfect in every objective way that I could measure. Mm-hmm. And also I hated it because that's the other thing where like, if it was a terrible boss or I had to wear a suit every day, like I would have just put my, I mean, just knowing myself, I would have assumed it was that. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No, no, it does. So you got a, a very clean signal from the experiment. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, you've had such a fantastic career with all these household brands that everyone's really familiar with. 
I know it's hard to do this with much depth, but it would be useful, I think, for folks that haven't worked in these organizations. Maybe you could just spend a few minutes comparing and contrasting the engineering organizations and cultures, because these are all very strong companies in their own right, but eBay, Google, Stitch Fix, and now even WeWork. That's a great question. I will try to do it justice. So yes, so I, I had the opportunity to work as the chief engineer at eBay for about six and a half years. I worked at Google on the early days of Google Cloud, running engineering for Google App Engine, which is the platform as a service. Stitch Fix, I was the VP of engineering for two years, grew the team from 25 to 125, and we IPO'd and everything. And then now I'm at WeWork for the last seven, eight months. So yeah, uh, very different engineering cultures and very different kind of phases of company. I guess I can contrast the two big ones and the two small ones, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. This is very unfair and it's very different today, but... Organizationally, when I joined in 2004, so remember that date, yes. that's a long time ago because I'm going to say harsh things like eBay, lots of things about eBay was like how not to run an engineering organization. When I got to Google in 2011, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there, I think a lot of things at the time Google has done right. So like eBay's totally turned itself around, by the way. And so like it's not eBay and Google today. But so one of the things that I always point to about eBay, which again, they stopped doing was they treated everybody, all the engineers, as like one big pool, and they formed project-based teams, but like short-term project-based teams. So it'd be like, there's a pool of a 1,000 engineers, and I have this project that's going to be like, add this feature mm-hmm. to like, add this feature. And for this feature, some engineer has scoped that thing. So some engineer has looked at what the product manager wrote up for the feature, and they did a good job writing it up. And then some engineer diligently said, okay, that's like four weeks of HTML work, six weeks of database work and like 10 weeks of application server work. And like mm-hmm. that's literally how they would do it. Right. And then the project team would be formed of, hmm, who's, a, who's an HTML person? And like, I'll take, I'll take one of you, or Morris, I'll take two of you for two weeks each. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll take, yeah, you're already <laughs> laughing. And I'll take three applicate, I forget the numbers I said. I'll take three database people for two weeks each, and I'll take, you know, whatever, five, you know, two application server people for five weeks each or whatever, whatever ladders up to that number. And note that, note, what ha- note all the several things that have happened there. One, your pe- those people are not permanently in that area of the code. They mm-hmm. get parachuted in. So they have no, even though they're excellent engineers and well-meaning, they have no incentive, nor they're allowed to like build things properly or right. clean up what was there. Mm-hmm. They just have to add on their new thing in the, in yep. the most horrible way possible. They didn't have any input into the problem they were solving, the feature they were building, the architecture of it, the design of it, or the estimation of it. Mm-hmm. They were told, you have four weeks to do this thing because some engineer you've never even met said that's how long it was going to take. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and again, this is not like everybody was well-meaning, right? But like the structure of this is, is horrible. Yeah. So like no long-term association with teams, everything very short-term. And so you can imagine after a couple of years of this, the code base is a disaster, which it totally was. So their salute, the solution, uh, which is, I'm just laughing at myself, the solution which benefited me personally, but like is horrible from an organizational perspective, and I feel guilty for being a part of it, was they were like, all right, well, so these thousand people are clearly producing terrible code. So we're not going to change the way we work. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to hire 20 incredibly like no hair, gray hair people that have been around the block for a, a while, which I had been at the time, and we're going to hire those people and they're going to tell the other thousand what to do. Awesome. <laughs> so that's the, so hence the eBay architecture team. And they were 20 of the best people I've ever worked with. Again, very strong engineers, well-meaning, genuinely good and nice people, but put in this situation where like 
each of us, I mean, do the math. Like each of us is like responsible for order 50 or right. 100 people's worth of worth of uh, work. And you're trying to you're trying to figure out like how do you help it be more sustainable? And that was hard. At the end of which, you'll, you know, the end, the, the positive end of the story is we ended up disbanding the architecture team, not firing them all, but correctly dispersing them <laughs> to their individual mm-hmm. teams because we all had domain areas of domain yep. expertise. Mine was search, but other people had other ones. And people, we just, they dispersed them to the teams and, you know, that's how we've had, that's how it is today. So that was the history of that. And there's also a history at eBay, which is known that it was never, it is and never was an engineering driven culture. It's always like more, I mean, particularly in the Meg Whitman and subsequent eras, way more of an MBA driven thing, which isn't fundamentally bad, but it made it difficult to feel entirely empowered as engineers. And we were typically not as much given problems as given tactical solutions, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Google, by contrast, though, is an engineering driven culture with its own dysfunctions, by the way, you know, its own trade offs. But fundamentally, it's a highly empowered organization. And so even at the, I think it's now 50,000 engineers, that's not the size of the company. That's the size of the engineering organization. Yeah. It's massive, massive, massive. But it doesn't behave as one top-down thing. It behaves as something like 5,000 10-person startups or 10,000 five-person startups, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And through the process of like setting goals and objectives and having those be like responded to and and met by the individual teams. That's how it works. And so that is how the Googles and the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world tend to be organized. Also the Stitch Fix, by the way, Mm -hmm. much smaller organization, but same thing where small, very small, highly empowered teams where Mm -hmm. you give them a goal rather than a solution and they figure out, you know, with the help of people that are product people and designers, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just engineers, but like the plurality is, is but does that make any sense? Yep. So the, the two very different. So that's like, eBay Google. eBay Google. So now, if you want to flip switch to yeah, so uh, Stitch Fix and WeWork both similar stages. So again, when I joined Stitch Fix two and now two and a half years ago, but I was there for two years. We were twenty five engineers in the company. We grew over two years, you know, five x to one hundred and twenty five. Yeah. And the beauty of that is that we followed. It was at a much smaller scale, but small of that same highly empowered full stack team model. So we we actually ended up growing, but like through, as I like to say, cellular mitosis. Uh, so people who remember their high school biology, cellular mitosis is where like a cell divides into two mm-hmm. and each of those daughter cells divide into two, et cetera, et cetera. And so it wasn't always like dividing into two, but when there would be more than, let's say six people-ish of work to do in a particular area and we had the people, we would cleave the teams into like two or maybe three sub teams. And then that's how, that's how we ended up growing from the 25 to the 125. And we did that seamlessly because we, A, started with a structure that made sense that mapped to custom problems. So there was always stuff we were building for the stylists that choose the clothes. There was always something that we were building for the warehouses that Mm -hmm. stored the clothes. There was always something that we were building for the clients. We'd say like the customers, like, so that, Division that was always true. Yeah. And even as we grew 5x the amount of people that we put on those things, the subdivisions among them like always naturally fell. So it was very clean. And also it's a nice distributed thing. So it wasn't like we had a hundred of those 125 people coming through all at once and being onboarded in some central way. Right. Instead, it was very highly distributed. And so each team would maybe, even at that fast growth rate, each team would be maybe growing like maybe one new person a month or two months. Mm-hmm. Or, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. from the perspective of an individual engineer on an individual team, it wasn't this massive 
growth rate, except in aggregate, it was. And it's just a quick question. So when you were growing like that, did you, for the interview process, were they primarily out of those small pods? Or Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's our, you know, your, you know your stuff. We did do a centralized interview process by discipline. So okay. like for, we used to say full stack engineer, I mean, they still say, but like, you know, the stack was Rails. So people would, the traditional person would be like all the way front end to database because mm-hmm. that's the classic full stack thing. After a while, we started having a little bit of specialization and we had a few operations people like yeah. platform related infrastructure people, which was excellent. You know, I, I spun up that team and then we interviewed differently for those people, right, for those skill sets. And then we, um, over time, we're talking about, there are a bunch of specialized JavaScript and front end skill sets, yeah. which... Uh, we were needing to do. So we ended up having like, I'm making this up, but on the order of three or four or five different interview pipelines, but they were all very um, templated, uh, which was wonderful. So again, when you have that kind of structure, you can distribute the interviews anywhere, like any, you know, yes. anybody who's trained in that area can Discipline. like do the first, front, can do the phone screen, blah, blah, blah. And then a wonderful thing that I really liked about that interview process was that we would tell people about, okay, we have all these opportunities. And we might even reach out to say, you should join the team that builds a styling tool. But like, as we go along, we'll learn more about that person. That person will learn more about us. And at the end of it, we'll have a conversation that is like the the double opt-in among the management and then with a candidate. Like, oh, you know, we originally thought you might want to join XYZ team. That would be cool. But, you know, here's this other opportunity that it Mm -hmm. sounds like marries your skills and interests yep. better, blah, blah, blah. And that almost universally had a great reaction from people. My team at, at uh, WeWork builds all the member-facing technology. So we build the mobile app that the members use, use to get access to the spaces, and book rooms, and all the stuff that they need to do. And then my team also builds the tools for the community managers that are like the receptionists behind the reception desk and like make the, make the buildings actually all work. Yep. And that's relevant because... The only metrics that matter mm-hmm. is are the members' needs being met and are they satisfied with how we're meeting them? And ditto, are the community managers' needs being met and are they satisfied with how we're meeting them? Right. At the at the time, I mean, we, we have much higher granularity metrics than that. But at the end of the day is we measure ourselves on do members want to stay with us longer and are they satisfied? And are community managers able to efficiently do their job and are they satisfied? The reason why I say it that way is because from a corporate perspective and from a leadership perspective in my thing, it almost, it doesn't really matter how we do that. I mean, it kind of does. Like mm-hmm. I do have strong opinions about how to run the engineering organization and all the processes. Right. But at the end of the day, if we are meeting those needs in a sustainable way, mm-hmm. like to keep the triple underlined the sustainable, if we are meeting those needs in a sustainable way, that is our job. We have done our job. We can go home and pat ourselves in the back. It does not matter how many lines of code. You're not of course, lines, yeah. of course. I know you know this, but like your readers too. Google does tend to have an outcome-oriented model of how they do, they call it OKRs. It comes from Intel. Sure. Objectives and key results. It's not the only way to do it, but it's a, it's a decent, well-understood way. And you say what the objective is. Like, I would like to drive revenue this much. I would like to introduce these new capabilities. I would like to allow customers of App Engine to do this and that and the other. And then we figure out, we, the team, like responds in some sense with the key results about how we're going to do that. And so it's all about the outcome. And then the key results in various other ways are like, are really just ways of management asking, are we on track to doing that? And then the management question to ask oneself is, what can I do to remove barriers, make things more useful? And, and, yeah, uh, so those are super powerful. I mean, I, I think it is super important to kind of align around this notion of outcome and, and customer happiness and so forth. Yeah. But 
Do you ever worry or how have you found navigating the fact that a lot of times those kinds of outcomes are things that you're doing in concert with product management, yeah. which is a different organization? Okay, it often is a different and different organization. It should never feel like a different organization. Hmm. So there should not be, in no healthy organization does product have a set of goals that are non-overlapping or distinct from engineering's goals, if that makes sense. We're all partners in this thing. And the Google model and also the WeWork model is that we do have parallel organizations, but Mm -hmm. we don't have parallel goals or parallel metrics. You know, my team... And I and I'm I'm how do you know this? But like I'll just say openly, like when I say my team, mm-hmm. I mean people that don't even report to me. <laughs> sure. I mean I mean team. I mean the product managers who don't report to me. I mean the uh, customer support people that don't report to me. I mean the communications people that don't report to me. Yeah. But all of us that work together in this member experience, member engagement area, we work that that I lead on the engineering side. We all have a common set of objectives and metrics. That's terrific. That's the key. So one last piece of trivia that I think kind of interesting. So I believe that your last name harkens from the German speaking part of Switzerland. Is that? That is true. That is true. And so I am, some of my listeners know, a lot of my friends know, I'm a little bit of a tennis nut. And one of the greatest tennis players of all time harks from, in fact, the German speaking part of Switzerland. Oh, cool. In Roger Federer. So I don't know if you play tennis, but if you didn't, I would give it a try because apparently there's something in the waters there. That, oh. uh, leads to great greatness uh, on the court. Wow, that's funny. So I am not a tennis player, but my father was an incredibly good. He was a he played table tennis in college and was very competitive, like nationally competitive wow. in table tennis. Yeah, and could play as a consequence. He could wipe the floor with me and <laughs> any racket sports. So that's racquetball, tennis, all those things. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So, so I didn't get that. It's a generation skipping thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe your son will get it. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. How well, funny. Well, Randy, this has been a terrific experience. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Bobby. This was really fun.